Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew. We've been we've been out of it for a while, haven't we? We've been seeing family, eating food, sleeping, opening presents. I don't know. Ben's over there doing something with his blanket. I, I don't know what that is. And, um, no, he was, it was just the angle. It was just the angle. But, uh, we're going to finish the Beatitudes tonight. So, give yourself a pat on the back. Give yourself a little, uh, little cheese and crackers, whatever, whatever suits your fancy. Um, man, we've made it through. We'll be done with 12 verses. And just for your consideration, something else for your consideration, I hope this pace is good for you. Uh, because I know it's good for you. Uh, because I know as we slowly and methodically consider and walk through the scriptures, um, I hope it gives you time to meditate. I hope it gives you time to digest. And I hope it gives you time to process and to think through what we've been studying. And hopefully I do a good enough job or at least a decent enough job to kind of review and catch us up to speed every single week so that we can all be on the same page. And, and I hope it's been helpful for you. I hope that by looking at these Beatitudes, you've been granted and given, not in sort of a, any kind of Gnostic sense or a higher knowledge kind of a sense, but just in a deeper, abiding, um, peacemaking kind of a sense for your own soul that these blessings, these attitudes, these combined of both, these beatitudes are uh, growing in your life, that they are becoming more apparent, that they're something that you are striving towards, working towards, uh, exerting your effort towards, and hopefully, you know, maybe maybe not so in the short term, in a couple of days or weeks or months even, but maybe in a couple of years, in a couple of decades, uh, half centuries, you can look back and you can see like, wow, like God truly has been faithful and I've truly grown to be more like his son, Jesus, uh, in my thought, in my deed, uh, in my word. And um, that's just the benefits, one of the benefits, one of many benefits we have when we slowly and methodically study the scriptures together. All right. So tonight we are wrapping up the Beatitudes with the last two Beatitudes. And you look at me and you look down at your Bible and you say like, two, I only see one word blessed. How can that be? Well, hang on to your horses because we'll get there. Uh, but for now, let us read all the Beatitudes. And we'll start in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And thus reads God's word. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be 
satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is the very word of the living God. What goes into a good sermon introduction? You guys have heard a couple of sermons already, and even before Rachel and I moved here, you've probably heard a couple of sermons before that. What goes into a good sermon introduction? Uh, you have some kind of opening hook, some kind of provocative question, like what, what goes into a good sermon introduction? Something that grabs your attention. Um, it helps the listener ponder and consider the subject you are about to listen and pre or preach upon if you're the preacher. Um, maybe you'll have background context of the text you're studying. Uh, and maybe you need to either review or introduce or reintroduce the context from which the text you are studying centers around. And of course, you need to present straightforwardly and plainly the main point uh, of the text, which is going to be the main point of the sermon, right? What we have been studying thus far is Jesus' sermon introduction. Uh, We have been studying his hooks. We've been studying how he builds context, and soon next week, uh, we'll study his main point. And the weeks to follow. And the reason why I draw your attention uh, to the craft and structure and construction of sermons, in particular this sermon on the Mount, is I not only want to continue to hone your attention on how to listen to sermons, uh, but also be able to gain more from them. I want you to be able to parse through the logic of the biblical text as you're listening to a sermon and check the preacher. I hope you're checking me. I hope what I'm saying, uh, what Pastor Glenn is saying, what your leaders are saying is true from the Bible. And so I find this very important because what we're studying until summer is a sermon. Uh, There is structure. There is logic and flow. There is a buildup and there's a climax and there's a denouement or a resolution. Um, The two verses we're studying tonight is the resolution of Jesus's sermon introduction. He has grabbed our attention with uh, nine beatitudes before and now he gives us a tenth and an eleventh to not only summarize the previous nine, but also to lead us into the body of what he's going to address us. And we've moved from the general to the specific. So to quickly review, we've been in the Beatitudes, the blessed attitudes of the Christian uh, who live and who possess the kingdom of heaven. 
And although he or she presently live and does not possess the kingdom of the earth. Uh, the first four Beatitudes describe how the Christian views himself or herself. Uh, poor in spirit describes the perpetual posture of the Christian before a holy God. And they, he then mourns over his sin, realizing because of his sin, he is rightfully condemned. He is meek knowing that in this world, Christians will never, never amount to anything that is right and good and praiseworthy in the world's eyes, but seeks the approval from his or her heavenly father. Um, he hungers and thirsts for righteousness because he knows that he possesses no inherent righteousness of his own, but rather seeks the righteousness of another. Uh, the next Three Beatitudes describe how the Christian views God. He's merciful uh, because though he is rightfully condemned, God grants him mercy. Therefore, he reciprocates that mercy with mercy towards others. He is pure in heart knowing that God is not the only one who, whom he seeks to please, uh, but also the one he seeks to imitate. Uh, he is a peacemaker because since God has made peace with him, he then desires to be like his peacemaker who makes peace with other people. And lastly, we have these three Beatitudes uh, that describe how not so much the Christian views anything, but how the world views the Christian and how the Christian views the world. Uh, last time, we were together, we observed the first of these three and how uh, Jesus forms a, an inclusio of sorts, a bracket, uh, bookends with the phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, uh, to indicate the entire experience of being of the kingdom of heaven while still living in a fallen world. We now move on to arrive at the final two Beatitudes. I want to distinguish to you that there are two Beatitudes here in verses 11 and 12. We'll cover that when we look at verse 12, but for now, Jesus concludes his introduction and he prepares us to move into the main point of his sermon by reinforcing this thought. Christians are called upon and blessed to be persecuted. Because of Christ and for Christ. To divide that sentence up, um, that is to say Christians are called upon to be persecuted because of Christ. Uh, Christians are called upon to be persecuted for Christ. Christians are blessed to be persecuted because of Christ. And Christians are blessed to be persecuted for Christ. In a simpler phrase, persecution is part of and parcel of what it means to be Christian. Uh, for the first time listener or reader of this sermon, uh, this idea, this concluding Beatitudes, uh, would be quite alarming. Something along the lines they would think, so you're telling me that if I'm called to be blessed, or I'm called to be truly happy, that means I must be hounded down, possibly even to the death. And Jesus would say, and I hope you would all say and agree that, yes, that is what Jesus is saying. 
But to put it inversely, if, I, if we were to flip it on its head, if you Christian, if you wasn't, if you weren't persecuted, how can you truly be sure that you are of Christ's own? If people do not mock you for your faith and make fun of you and blaspheme Christ because of you, how do you know you truly belong to him? How do you know that you're not of the same stripe and color as the world? If persecution doesn't differentiate you from that world. Uh, Persecution, as terrifying as it may sound, uh, is the one of the greatest assurances for the church because it guarantees that we are on Christ's side. Like we studied last time, if you are persecuted for righteousness sake, Jesus says, then you truly know you are in possession of the kingdom of heaven. So let us dive further into these two verses, these final two beatitudes, and we'll just take them one one at a time. We just have two points for tonight. First is, blessing through persecution comes from Christ. Blessing through persecution comes from Christ. That's verse 11. Second, blessing through persecution comes for Christ. Blessing through persecution comes for Christ. All right? So let's dive into that and see what I mean by that. Blessing through persecution comes from Christ. Uh, Jesus begins the uh, this final of two Beatitudes with the same formulaic word we've seen before, blessed. Uh, this has the same connotations, um, same meaning as the previous eight Beatitudes. One of true happiness and genuine joy. But look what follows immediately after the blessing of that term. Jesus says, blessed are you. You. The second person pronoun, you. We move away here. Jesus moves us away from the abstract, the Christian's the Christians, those people who embody all of these previous character traits to the second person plural pronoun, you, you. Jesus gets into our kitchens and he says, this is you. Persecution is real and persecution is coming. Furthermore, the tense of the verbs. Um, None of you guys are Greek scholars here, I can imagine, so that's okay. But Track along with me here. The tense of the verbs paint the picture that persecution is as good as here. It's pretty much here. Uh, Coupled with that conjunction, blessed are you when, when, not if, Jesus gives three verbs that are all in a state of telling us that these events will happen for sure because of something that has happened in the past. Uh, The first of these verbs is revile you or insult you or cast disgrace upon you. Uh, This verb epitomizes the age-old adage that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words truly, truly do hurt. A person's words hold meaning. It holds power. It can be used to build up and it can be used to tear down. And Jesus 
is specifically saying here that people will use their words to tear you down. People will weaponize their language, their vocabulary, their tone of voice to make you feel the shame of following Jesus. Next verb, he says, they will persecute you. We've looked at this verb already. Um, Here we move from the verbal to the physical. Uh, They will hound you down. They will do things that uh, you will wish would never happen to anybody. And to some, even they will hold your very life in their hands to force you to renounce your allegiance to Christ. Um, They'll persecute you. And lastly, the last verb here paints the picture of not only will people attack you with words, but they will attack your character. They will gossip. They will lie about who you are. They will misrepresent you. Literally, the phrase is rendered, say all, all evil against you. All evil. Because of me. Because of me. Beloved, if you are truly in Christ, I hope a wave of comfort and relief and assurance washes over your soul because of this one short phrase because of me or on my account in one fell swoop jesus is able to comfort the most frightful of sinners and here he does it by ascribing all of this evil that will be guaranteed on us on christians he ties it back to himself And just as Jesus tied himself uh, to our sins and he bore them all the way to the cross and to the tomb, uh, so here he ties all of the persecution that will come um, to his children. He brings it upon himself. Here we have the reason for our blessedness. Our blessedness comes from persecution, but also our blessedness, our joy and our peace and our true happiness comes from Christ. Still, Richard Wormbrand is a man not many of you may know, uh, but I hope he is one that you can grow familiar to know. Uh, Richard Wormbrand founded the well-known missions organization Voice of the Martyrs, uh, which is an organization that supports and sends missionaries into the most dangerous locations in the world. Uh, Places with the hottest, most intense persecution. But even before Richard Wormbrand uh, was to found this beloved missions organization, he would witness persecution and be persecuted himself. He was a pastor to the then enslaved nation of Romania under the Russian communist regime. And I want to share you... Uh, to share with you one account of persecution that he witnessed uh, when he wrote in his book, Tortured for Christ. Tortured for Christ. And he writes this. A pastor by the name of Florescu was tortured with red-hot iron pokers and with knives. He was beaten very badly. Then starving rats were 
driven into his cell through a large pipe. He could not sleep because he had to defend himself all the time. If he rested a moment, the rats would attack him. He was forced to stand for two weeks, day and night. The communists wished to compel him to betray his brethren, but he resisted steadfastly. Eventually, they brought his 14-year-old son to the prison and began to whip the boy in front of his father, saying that they would continue to beat him until the pastor said what they wished him to say. The poor man was half mad. He bore it as long as he could. Then he cried to his son, Alexander, I must say what they want. I can't bear your beating any more. The son answered, Father, don't do me the injustice of having a traitor as a parent. Withstand. If they kill me, I will die with the words, Jesus and my fatherland. The communist, enraged, fell upon the child and beat him to death, with blood splattered over the walls of the cell. He died praising God. Our dear brother, Florescu, was never the same after seeing this. Handcuffs with sharp nails on the insides were placed against our wrists. If we were totally still, they didn't cut us. But in the bitterly cold cells, when we shook with cold, our wrists would be torn by the nails. Christians were hung upside down on ropes and beaten so severely that their bodies swung back and forth under the blows. Christians were also placed in icebox refrigerator cells, which were so cold that frost and ice covered the inside. I was thrown into one while I had very little clothing on. Prison doctors would watch through an opening until they saw symptoms of freezing to death. Then they would give a signal and guards would rush in and take us out and make us warm. When we were finally warmed, we'd be immediately be put back into the icebox cells to freeze. Thawing out, then freezing to within minutes of death, then being thawed out over and over again. Even today, there are times when I can't bear to open a refrigerator. We Christians were sometimes forced to stand in wooden boxes only slightly larger than we were. This left no room to move. Dozens of sharp nails were driven into every side of the box with their razor-sharp points sticking through the wood. While we stood perfectly still, it was all right. But we were forced to stand in these boxes for endless hours. When we became fatigued and swayed with tiredness, the nails would pierce our bodies. If we moved or twitched a muscle, there would be horrible nails. What the communists have done to Christians to surpass, surpasses any possibility of human understanding. I've seen communists whose faces while torturing believers shone with rapturous joy. They cried out while torturing the Christians, We are the devil! We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of evil. We saw that communism is not from men, but from the devil. It is a spiritual force, a force of evil, and can only be countered by a greater spiritual force. The Spirit of God. This isn't a rant against communism, uh, nor is this a rant against Russians. Uh, but I want to show you this to paint a very real, very stark picture of the cost of following Christ. But Jesus still says, 
he still says in the beginning of this verse, blessed. He still pronounces this state of blessedness. The state of being persecuted, standing up for two weeks straight, being beaten by rods and whips, being hung upside down, and having loved ones taken away after you one after another. Jesus still calls all of this blessed. Why? On my account. Because of me. Because of Christ. Because Christ suffered first. Christ was persecuted first. Christ was mocked first. Christ was beaten first. Christ died. No. Christ rose again first. The cost of following Jesus Christ becomes so much more worth it because this blessedness ensures not only all the previous blessings that we studied before, but more so an eternity's worth of blessing forevermore that follows. You lose your life here on earth. If you are in Christ, if you are what he says, what he, what he demands, what he follows, what happens after that? Glory. An eternity of glory. An eternity of beholding Jesus, seeing him face to face, walking with him, worshiping him, learning from him. And most importantly, as the writer of Hebrews says, resting in him. So look at persecution dead in the eye. Gird up your loins. Prepare your minds because the mocking will come. The jeering will come. And I encourage even some of you, resolve yourself to be used mightily by God. Consider missions. Consider ministry. And embrace any and all persecution that will come because that ensures blessing. That guarantees the abiding presence of Christ Jesus. However, this blessing is not just for ourselves. It's for Christ. It's for his glory. It's for his honor. It's for his praise. And this brings us to verse 12. Blessing through persecution comes for Christ. Blessing through persecution comes for Christ. I mentioned earlier that this is the last beatitude. Uh, Rather, it's not just so much the state of blessedness that I want you guys to pick up on. It's not so much the state, but rather it's beatitude in action. Jesus completes these beatitudes, these steps up the mountain of the Christian attitude, the Christian posture with two uh, two commands, which is in one sense just one compound command. And he says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. That is that blessed attitude, that beatitude lived out, constant. It has that present imperative function, that true blessing, true happiness is lived out, rejoicing and being glad in every circumstance, from the highest highs of life to the lowest lows of persecution and suffering. Jesus is turning the corner here to say, you are being persecuted? Rejoice. 
Be glad, be happy, and not in some kind of happy-go-lucky, airheaded kind of a way, but in a real, full, deep, solid, abiding, steadfast faith kind of way. Jesus gives the reason for our rejoicing that because of this persecution, the reward we have in heaven is great. Nowhere in scripture does God make clear or make specific what down to the minutia detail reward we'll gain in heaven. Like I don't have six luxury Porsches, heavenly Porsches lined up for me. That's not in scripture. Rather, numerous parts of scripture describe heaven uh, with intimacy, uh, with God himself. Heaven will be a restoration of an Edenic-like paradise in the past where man and woman walked with God without shame and without, without sin. Uh, their relationship with God was unhindered and unbounded. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, our mediator, stands in the middle of all of that. Just as he reconciled us to God in the first place, in heaven he is the focal point of our fellowship and our worship with God in, in the next. Um, elsewhere in the scriptures you have um, the parable, like the talents. The parable of the talents. It describes some having more reward in heaven and some having less. And we do not know what that specifically means. Uh, does that mean I get more screen time with Jesus? Um, probably not. Uh, probably not because Jesus is infinite in being and in presence. And there's probably no screens in heaven either. But it does make clear that those who are the least on the kingdom of earth will be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, John the Baptist is probably up there because Jesus himself said that there is none born of a woman who is greater than John. So regardless of those details, which is obscured from us for good reason, I think Jesus' point still remains. All of your present persecution and all of your present suffering, he says, for his sake will be for his glory and will be vindicated, will be proven right in heaven. Jesus supplements that by saying, by giving a similar statement, in the same way, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Um, that means we fall in line with men and women with the same deep and abiding faith that Jesus himself Commends that both in the same way hung on to a promise. And these were men and women who did not have the complete scriptures and only saw Jesus from afar and yet welcomed him by faith, believed on him, and were persecuted and was hounded for the same faith we too experience. All these blessings we experience are from Christ, but ultimately, are for Christ. This begs one very crucial question. You, student, parent, young man and woman 
who claims to be a Christian. Uh, I can tell, you guys can I can see that you are hardly being persecuted right now. COVID-19 is not this persecution Jesus is describing here. And my question is, the, the question that this text begs of us posh American Christians is this. Why aren't we? Why aren't we being persecuted? Do you live your life in such a dramatically Christian way that you, so full of self-sacrifice, humility, love, and grace towards others, that you are purposefully mocked, purposefully gossiped about, purposefully jeered at? Or do you play it cool? Do you let your testimony as a Christ follower slide under the radar because you're too scared to be made fun of? My first response is that same here. Yeah, that's me. But I know that because of persecution here and now on earth, the reward in heaven, Jesus says, is great. Christ is a worthy, worthy reward as he is a worthy Savior, Lord, and King. And so I want to share more abundantly in that reward more abundantly with the well-done, good, and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your master kind of reward because I can assure that that reward, that kind of blessing, far outstrips and trumps any kind of earthly reward or peace or lying low or occasionally be a Christian on Sundays or Wednesdays kind of reward. I want to be blessed eternally. In that sense, in the joy of my master kind of a sense, and I hope you do too. We've made it to the end of the Beatitudes. And I hope you're not tired just yet. Because we're getting to the meat of the meal that Jesus has prepared for us. Jesus has more to say and more to unpack for us. And for the next couple of weeks, we enter into his thesis, his main idea, his main point, what he's truly trying to drive home for us, what all these beatitudes built up to, and what the rest of his sermon will go on and demonstrate. And I hope these beatitudes have whetted your appetite and gave you a little sampling of who Jesus is and what he's all about. And to conclude on persecution, no less, I hope you also consider the seriousness that comes um, in following Christ. Let's pray. Father God, again, by your grace, we are not persecuted. By your grace, we live in a country where religious freedom is first in a list of long freedoms. And we enjoy the grace of being able to eat warm meals, have poofy jackets, and lie and sleep in warm beds every night, knowing that, one, it's all by your hand, and two, 
You have designed it so that we don't suffer like some other of our brothers and sisters across the world do. And so, Lord, I hope our attitude isn't macabre in that we go searching for persecution, uh, but grant us the faith that when persecution comes, like you've said, we may be ready to withstand and proclaim Christ as we do even in times of comfort like these. So, Lord, uh, thank you for counting us being worthy uh, to suffer with your Son as he has first suffered for us. We pray all these things in his matchless name. Amen.